Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Think of Christianity in Southeast Asia today, and what might come to mind is the predominantly Catholic Philippines or the work of the Baptist Church among linguistic and cultural minorities in Myanmar, or any one of the thousands of Christian communities scattered throughout Indonesia. Tham Ngo's new book is about none of these relatively familiar groups and places, but instead about the emergence and growth of Protestantism among the Hmong in upland areas of Vietnam on the border of China. That book is The New Way, Protestantism and the Hmong in Vietnam, published in 2016 by the University of Washington Press. And its author, who is a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute, is joining us today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and host of the channel. Dam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's the new way to which the title of the book refers? In Hmong, Christianity is translated directly as the new way. In Hmong pronunciation, it would be literally the new way. So I thought what better phrase to uh, describe this movement in which a third of a society so exuberantly announced that they have found a new way and the formation of language, of cultural discussion and social relation are then separated along the line of O and new. So the title is a transliteration of uh, a term, but it's also hopefully through the book, uh, a reader can see that it captures this arrival and establishment of Christianity as a new way in Hmong society parallels or sometimes in conflict with the old way, which is the Hmong traditional religious practice and belief. What got you interested in researching and writing about this topic? Well, I was born King Vietnamese. Uh, we are about 90, 91% of the population. But Vietnam is a country of 54 different ethnic groups, and therefore the 10% of other 53 ethnic groups are residing mostly in the Northern Highland, which is also the place where I was born. Our family used to live on a lane which leads to the mountain pass, where most of the minority people live. When I was a child, I remember so vividly how we would be playing along the lane and ethnic minority people, mostly Hmong and Zhao, they would pass by 
And in Vietnamese, mong is called mèo, which I think is a Vietnamese pronunciation of mèo zu, the mèo people in China. But in Vietnamese, mèo also means a cat. And so as kids, we would be running around playing fool and uh, teasing this uh, poor ethnic minority kid who come to town already terrified by a little so-called urban establishment that they saw. And we would be shouting at them, calling them out as little cat. Who wants to buy little cat? And as five or six years old kid, we did that, but none of the adults around us corrected our behavior. Obviously, it is wrong behavior, but no adult say anything. So I grow up for some years more with the idea that king people can do anything to ethnic minority. They are lesser than us. They are somehow not even human because we are allowed to call them cat. But then when I was in my teen, my father, who is a medical doctor, was running a civil development program sponsored by SIDA, which is Swedish Development Agency, to bring medical facility to ethnic minority areas in the upland region. So I would be following him during summer break. And one of the main establishments that he was trying to build a clinic and send doctors there is Songhai Commune, which later became my field workplace. And in those years, probably three or four summers that I followed my father to the place and spending my summer time with my Hmong friends, my Hmong family, Uh, it changed my, my mind completely. My father wasn't there to correct me when I misbehaved uh, at five years old because he was in army at that time. But he was there to show me how rich, how respectful, how uh, kind Hmong people are. And that's really changed my perception about them. And when I came to Holland, I studied anthropology in Amsterdam and Leiden. Uh, we had this debate about the others and how anthropology changed their position, how society through colonial to post-colonial period, the relation between people, between researcher and, and their subject changed. I thought my own personal experience captured that so well. And also at that time, there was this big political hive in Vietnam about the Hmong own become Christian and how disastrous that would be for the Vietnamese government. So reading the Vietnamese news really bring back a lot of memory that I have when I was staying with the Hmong. And the demonic way the Vietnamese government tried to portray this converter raised a lot of doubt in my mind. So as a essay for my MA in anthropology in Leiden, I proposed to go back and study that. And well, it became my MA research thesis and also the start of my PhD. You've already mentioned that approximately a third of Hmong now identify or are identified as Christians. How do we get to this situation of such a large number of Hmong converting in such a short period of time? I did a lot of field work among missionary from the Christian and Missionary Alliance Society in the US. Many of them like to use a phrase that is a God's miraculous way of doing things how they could convert a group of people, not by physically being present among them, but by sending the signal through the air. So this is how the Hmong conversion come about. Basically, after the end of the Vietnam War, many Hmong people from Laos also had to leave the country when the Lao Patet took over. And because during the Vietnam War, the secret war in Laos with the aid, military and economic aid of the U.S., there are also president of missionary and there was already a number of Hmong converts in Laos who then became refugee and some of the Lao Ocean Christian converts went to the U.S. 
And at that time, one of the pressing issues is to reconnect with Hmong family and friends and acquaintance, but also believers who are stuck in the camp or still in the jungle between Laos and Thailand. And the radio that was used by the Far East Broadcasting Company is proven to be the best signal sending station. So there was a group of Christian missionaries in the U.S. who came together for a meeting in 1979. They came up with the plan, and that was very soon approved by the Far East Broadcasting Company to record and broadcast uh, not only Christianity, but also masses back to their people in Laos. And their program was hosted by the FM station from Manila. And because when you send a signal, especially shortwave signal, the distance is crucial. So somehow the northern highland of Vietnam turned out to be a perfect place to receive signal, even better than in Laos. So the program which were aimed for Laosian Christians in Thailand and in Laos was received by the Hmong in northern Vietnam who at that time, some of them owned radio to our radio, either You have to have some money and border smuggling was one of the ways to earn cash at that time. And many of these radio actually come from China or some other Hmong family who got radio because they was once target of Vietnamese government so-called civilizing mission program, which they give radio so that they can receive radio broadcasting from Hanoi. But uh, now the signal from Manila is received in this radio. And that in the first few years prompted a lot of Hmong listeners to the idea that they are listening to the voice telling the story about an ancient hero, ancient god in their own belief, who was one the savior of Hmong society, but the church's Han invader killed him. And so before he died, he promised that he will come back and save the Hmong people, bring them to a better place and basically create a Hmong uh, land, a Hmong society. Uh, when they hear this uh, program, the first reaction which I received through interview is to basically prepare for the arrival of the king in a total millenaria fashion. They stop working on the field, they gather and basically await for their king to arrive. Some of them, the fanatic type, even think about a creative way of being actively involved with going away with the king by learning to fly. I was told of 1K of people die while trying to fly in my province. But then, of course, the date that at that time they interpreted that the king will arrive didn't come with a great arrival, the grand arrival of the king. So the from the disappointment, some go back to normal life, some other go on to search further. If it is not about our king, then what else? Who is this lord, this great lord who command on other lord and who is this great savior who promised a better way of life? And the third let them to Hanoi, where they were received by the evangelical church in Hanoi, who gave them material. Uh, by the way, before that, some other went to Catholic church in the province because during the colonial period, the, the Hmong was also a target of Christianization, but through the Catholic missionary network, there was still some remnant of church and seminary. So they went there and searched for the answer about what they hear on air. And they were told by Catholic priests that, no, this is a Protestant. You have to go to Hanoi. So 
That's how uh, it marked the beginning of Christianity, of uh, Protestantism in the Hmong society. The question I have concerns this relationship between millenarian traditions and their interpretations. Was it a deliberate feature of the broadcasts that they speak to those traditions, or was it a matter of the interpretation of the listeners? In other words, was there a strategic intention on the part of the people behind the broadcasts that their message be understood in terms that were culturally specific to the Hmong community? And perhaps you could say a bit more about, well, who are the people at the other end of the broadcast? When the Manila radio became successful in what it does, Vietnamese government got hold of it. And in fact, the first uh, news that they know that their work is successful in Vietnam for missionary and broadcaster from Manila and from the U.S. is via a headline from the People Daily, which is a party newspaper in Vietnam, and they are sending out this alarming message that uh, Hmong people in Vietnam are massively either doing millenarian things or are becoming Christian after listening to an American-sponsored propaganda program from Manila. That's how they call it. So from the very beginning, from the Vietnamese point of view, there was this deliberate effort by missionary, who is, of course, from the Vietnamese communist point of view, working hand-in-hand with American military who failed in Vietnam, but now through the other means of so-called peaceful evolution scheme, is still trying to dominate Vietnam. So from that perspective, the story about the Hmong Savior and the Messianic tradition and narrative that is used in the program is deliberate. But in my interview of a number of missionaries who was and are still staying in, in Thailand, which is another big office of the FABC, I went also to California where the headquarters of the FABC is, and I interviewed the president of the FABC, Dr. Jim Bowman, and from there he led me to many other missionaries who directly work with the Hmong program. I also talked to the radio technicians of the Afaith Broadcasting Company, who then diverted me to a missionary from Scotland who was specializing in translation of Himmel song into Hmong. And that wide base of information make me realize that to ask whether it is deliberate or not sounds a little bit Freudian in my view. Missionary in their work of translating a culture into the Christian language take it very serious that it have to somehow be personal. And so the Hmong program was given a lot of freedom. The group of missionaries at the beginning who run this program were given the full freedom to choose what story in Hmong, very rich repertoire of oral folklore to be incorporated so that they can produce a program that, that would touch the heart of the Hmong people in the first place. And as I mentioned, it was a program that produced also mainly to reconnect with their own people back in Laos. So the emotional effect of it was enormous. Also thanks to a very beautiful way of telling story, which is like the traditional way of telling story only with Christian contents. Now the story about the king, the savior, and why many Hmong was quickly mistaken the Christian god with their own uh, Tai, which is the Hmong king of Vang Tzu in Vietnamese. It is not deliberate, at least as far as I find out, but it's just a very natural flow of transition from Christian story to the Hmong audience. Around a third of Hmong in Vietnam have now converted. How many people is that and how do they convert? 
do they do it individually as family groups by entire villages or somehow otherwise? Well, the Hmong population in Vietnam in total today is a, a little bit above 1 million people. So 30% of them is roughly around 300 to 400,000 people. This is my and a couple of sources estimation. There is no source that can claim to provide the real number because Vietnamese government provide a set of number which is way lower than reality out of the reason that uh, they would like to play down the, uh, the success of this conversion. The missionary source, of course, give a uh, way higher figure also to highlight how successful they are. So when I did field work, I did a number of big surveys in my areas and I collect provincial data, which uh, there are only two set of data, the one that managed by local officer, which uh, reveal uh, more or less the true figure and the data that in the end, provincial leader would agree that, okay, this is the number of Christians we have. We only allow so many numbers and so on. So with all these different sorts of numbers, I come through a method of estimating in my own area through surveys to figure that is about a third of Hmong in Vietnam are Christian now. How do they convert? This vary from case to cases. I met so many people who have almost classic narrative of a moment where their heart was turning and so it's a individual quest for spirituality and so on. But there are also countless cases in which people convert because they clan leader convert or their family convert. So it's hard to say, but uh, to give an estimation, I think the number becomes so high as a third of Hmong society uh, is mainly attributed to the group's conversion. Um, did explain by a fact that in Hmong society, uh, still a clan relation is quite important. So if a clan leader convert, there is a good chance that many members in his uh, clan would uh, convert too. However, in my own family, the family that I took residence for uh, several years during my research, as I detail in the book, they are interesting, exceptional type because their family is uh, divided even as a small social unit. They are divided along the line of Christianity. The opening pages of the book begin with the family and they gesture to one of the recurrent themes in the book, which you're already alluding to, and that's the inevitable tensions that arise between those who convert and those who refuse to convert. Among the latter also, there are some who are indifferent or disinterested, but there are some who are actively hostile to the church. Then there are not only non-converts, but there are also deconverts, as in one member of that family. Right. It is just um, my luck. I end up living with a family and being accepted by them. And therefore, I know their story. There are many very uncomfortable moments. How Christianity divides that family has produced many painful conflicts and has led to basically a permanent rupture in that family. If you look at this family, you can see various patterns in Hmong conversion that has been documented by scholars elsewhere as the reason why non-Christian people become Christian and how it worked out for so many different social and economic reasons. The family start out, first of all, as an immigrant because they left their natal Vinglis. Uh, up in the hill on the Bakha Highlands, which is a district about 80 kilometers away from where they live now. 
that is where their strong social and clan relations remained. So moving away, they, like many others in their areas, faced a lot of hardship. And when their son came of age, they got this great opportunity for him that he can marry a very good bride with great amount of dowry. For Hmong people, having a good daughter-in-law is so important. So the only demand is that they have to become Christian. So they did convert in that years. And looking back, there are some members in the family think that it was just very practical. So you can say it is not rice Christian, but more and less instrumental Christian. Nevertheless, after that, the faith grow deeper for the wife, but not for the husband. And there, by detailing social relations that each of them have with their own people, so the Hmong people, but also with Vietnamese government, illuminate the reason why the husband deconvert and the wife remained in the Christian fold. And it just go on from there. Every big decision in the family is always wrapped around uh, whether we do it in a Christian way or whether we don't. My Hmong father constantly have to struggle between his own pride as a member of a very strong and powerful Hmong clan. Some member of this clan has reached to the national state of leadership, so I wouldn't give the name here, but that gives an enormous prize to him. So he would like to be seen as a part of the Vietnamese government, but the choice for him is either Christianity or the government. So that was one of the reasons he become lukewarm Christian and then stay away from the church. But then there are also other more personal revelations. As a very intelligent man, he devoted his time to studying and learning about Christian teaching and also his own Hmong way of doing things. And he come to the conclusion that Hmong traditional culture is not anything less than Christianity. So in one of the later chapters in the book, I give a brief description about how he became one of the active members in the de-Christian society who basically is looking back into Hmong culture in order to, to undo the impact of conversing on their culture. And so basically for him, it is both the political and the social pressure that puts a different turn in his fate but also a personal and intellectual factor that make him committed and become passionately committed to certain sites, either become a communist or later on become a Hmong traditionalist. Let's take a short break here for a sponsor's message. And when we return, we'll talk more about your fieldwork, about the Communist Party, about missionaries and responses to the new way. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Dam Ngo about her book, The New Way. Dam, tell us a bit more about how you undertook the research and some of the challenges specifically that you encountered in doing work on this Christian population in a communist country. Well, I start with the end of your sentence. It is indeed a communist country. And as I mentioned earlier, Hmong conversion has become a headline 
And so far, well, the Vietnamese media called the hottest political trouble or issues throughout the 1990s, on the way up to almost the mid-2000s. In such a tense political context, for a long period, literally no researcher, unless you are a member of certain mission-fighting group by the State Bureau, can go to Hmong Christian area to do research or conduct interview. So that was by far the largest problem for me when I start my research. I still remember so vividly when I came back to Lao Cai announced to my family. I, by the way, have to thank my family for their support because without their local connection and network, I would never be able to uh, obtain research permission and conduct this research. And also there have been so much political trouble that we felt them because of helping me. So I'm greatly indebted to them. Uh, but when I announced to them that I want to study the impact of Christianity on monk uh, society, 100% of people I asked refused to help me and say, oh, you choose something else. There are so many other interesting things to study. Why you have to do this? But nevertheless, with my persistent demand, some of my family and friends give in and help to introduce me to one to another and in the end, I need a personal letter of the chairman of the province to vet for me that I am not uh, a spy from the CIA. I'm, I'm earnestly wanting to, wanting to help by first studying and, and understand this political trouble, which is Hmong conversion. And so therefore, we should support and give her a chance. So with such a letter, I go into the field. I came with such a letter, so I was seen by local authority as I was sent down from above. So they have to accommodate me. And so therefore, they find a safest way to accommodate me in their view, which is placing me in the house of a, a Hmong policeman who is a fervent anti-Christian, a very kind and nice man, but his opinion about Christianity is very particular. And also, he took a very violent stand against Christian conversion in the area. So I, I stay with his family for a couple of days. And very soon, I realized that if I stay here, my research ends here. There's no way I would be able to talk to a Christian if I keep staying there. So I, I have to excuse myself and leave the house and go back. Then I was introduced by a Hmong leader who, in the way he is my research assistant, but in many other ways, he is my Hmong teacher. He teach me so many things about Hmong society and the current social problem that they are facing when Christianity arrived. When I explained to him that I want to understand the, from the inside how this conflict works, then he sent me to this family that, uh, who become my Hmong family. The head of the family, who is my Hmong father, who was Christian but deconverted and became a Hmong traditionalist, he took me in partly because he owed a favor to my research assistant, but partly because he also wanted to have me on his side. His wife and his children, who are Christian, see me as an enemy from the day one. And there is a turn of event that they change their position when they bump into the police who were spying on me. So even though I have the letter of the chairman of the province as my vetting document, uh, local police basically did not trust me because I talked to the Christian. I live in a Christian household. And when these two groups come together, then the Christian Hmong understood that I am not from the government, as they thought. From then on, it took many, many more months for me to fully gain their trust. So you asked me what is the, the challenge to do this research. First, to get a permission. And so far, as I know, that up till this point, there is no foreign researcher, even Vietnamese with foreign background or a study abroad, could do this research. 
So I think I owe it to my family for being in the province and having a strong connection there. And the second biggest problem is to establishing rapport uh, with my informant. Let's move from the field site to the national level. You've already referred to the tensions between members of the community, including those who are aligned with or working for the Communist Party. The Communist Party, for its part, recruits and supports people who work against attempts at conversion. But you spell out in the book how its campaigns and its tactics have changed over time. Can you talk us through briefly the different characteristics in its tactics and activities to control and oppose conversion? And indeed, why does it tolerate conversion among the Hmong at all? Tolerating conversion is, I would not describe it as such because I believe if they have other choice, they would not allow conversion at all. But since the choice is not entirely theirs, they have to accommodate that to some extent. I explain that in the book also how the colonial legacy has produced this socialist and then now less socialist reaction toward conversion to Christianity. There are two sides, the colonial history in which Hmong people uh, happened to be in a place that the communists, the Viet Minh, has had time to take control. A Hmong group was one of the groups that were targeted by French missionary, which is then seen as a colonial sympathizer. And then the fact that the Northern Highland, even five years after the Diet Bien Phu battle was over, remained in the control of the Kuomintang and of local Hmong lord who refused to give up arms and join the new government linger on in the mind of government officers who are dealing with the Hmong. And also this program that the communist government tried to establish socialism in the highland has produced a very violent episode in the recent, very recent Hmong history. So for, for example, the uprising in Mường Khương uh, district in the mid 1970s and then the, the meddling of the Chinese army and intelligence forces prior to the 1979 border war has added further suspicion on Hmong group. So now, imagine an ethnic group that is so different from the, the mainstream, who has a history of violence, reaction towards the state effort to incorporate them in the realm of the nation state, who has been practicing their own religion, which is seen as barbarous and different from the king way of doing religion and spirituality. On top of that, they are now going to convert to Christianity, which is seen, first of all, as a colonial tool of domination and also American way of trying to further control Vietnam. So uh, it's all add up to a disaster. And from the very beginning, Communist cadre has already taken a very strong rejection of Christianity. In the first plan set out to prevent conversion, which is in the beginning of the 1990s, the plan was to basically unite, stop conversion, make people come back to practicing traditional Hmong religion. Then in the year 2000 to 2004, there are larger political development in Vietnam that affects the plan. So in 2005, Vietnam became the member of the World Trade Organization. And that is a landmark moment that make the change because one of the requirements for Vietnam to be accepted uh, to the World Trade Organization is that they have to improve their human rights record. And Hmong conversion has become a headline in many missionary news circles. And also there are congressional hearings in the U.S. supported by not only Hmong but also other Asian groups in the U.S. to use it as an example of the violation of human rights in Vietnam. 
So the Vietnamese government since 2001 with the implementation of Decree 1 uh, has come to a different tactic. Now it is no longer the violent attacks or suppression of Christianity, but a selective acceptance, literally selective, because only some Hmong Christians would be recognized by the government as Christian. And behind these changes are very interesting ethnographic information for my study because that show uh, how the perception about Christianity, what the idea about authentic faith and authentic conversions are in order for the state apparatus to set out a guideline who are real Christian and who are not and who are allowed to go to church and who uh, are prohibited to do so. And then and after Vietnam became a member of the World Trade Organization, the fervorness in the Hmong society somehow also calmed down a bit. Up to 2001-2003, many Hmong Christian groups want to be recognized and therefore their activities are also more provocative and public. But when they are recognized as a Christian church by the state, then things change from there. And so after 2005, the plan is still to try to get as many Hmong people away from the church, but doing so by the method of cultural persuasion instead of a violent means, by arresting or jailing and so on. So after 2005, there are many programs in my province and neighboring province to promote the revival of Hmong traditional festival. It's fascinating. Because the same, for example, New Year festival that was one banned as a superstition is now being studied, being choreographed by a government uh, cultural officer in order to bring it back with the full force and full vitality and full spirit in order to act as a bulwark again further Christian advancement in the areas. That really is fascinating. How does it compare with the experience of Hmong counterparts Christians in Laos? It is hard to make a full comparison unless I do another study on it. But I think there are some uh, essential difference when it comes to the relation between the Hmong and the state or the Hmong and the majority group. So in my book, I detail one of the deeper, larger and important background to the Hmong Christian conversion is the very tension in the ethnic relation between the Hmong and the king and how being constantly pushed down and basically discriminated against for being different and being lesser has produced this reaction that many Hmong people come to Christianity to find a higher esteem and higher play in the world. That, I think, doesn't happen in Laos because ethnic component of Laos is different from Vietnam and the Hmong position in Laos economically are also different uh, in comparison to their Hmong counterpart in Vietnam. So in my view, Hmong people in Laos has easier time than the Hmong in Vietnam. Although the Hmong group in Vietnam are bigger and politically there are some successful Hmong, but as a whole, the Hmong group in Vietnam, I think, are more marginalized than their Hmong counterpart in Laos. We need to turn our attention before concluding to missionaries. Early on, you talked about how the experience of Hmong runs contrary to traditional conversion narratives in that the word of God fell, as it were, from the sky. But you have alluded to the fact that missionaries now have a presence of some sort. So when did they turn up and who are they and how do they differ from their predecessors, say, from the colonial time? Actually, the difference is not only with their colonial college, but 
in the almost three decades of Protestant presence in Hmong society now, there are several different generations of missionaries who are responsible for this uh, movement. The very beginning of them are the legendary figure of John Lee and his wife. John Lee is seen as the Billy Graham of the Hmong for his incredible charismatic preaching his charismatic personality and his really talented broadcaster. His radio program uh, is recorded in California, broadcast our Manila. Uh, the further is he can come to his listener is to Thailand and also in Laos because he came from Laos, but he never be able to set foot in Vietnam. And as soon as the Vietnamese state figure out that it was him behind the radio, they have already put a strict uh, warrant out for him. So he, there's no way he could come to Vietnam before he died. His colleague, a missionary who is now in Thailand, could come to Vietnam and see uh, detailed to me the account of several of the trip to Vietnam, which was very quick, very brief, and very secret. But nevertheless, that was uh, very gratifying for her and her listener. And that happened only in late 1990s. However, after the year 2000, things changed because of the, the further open up between Vietnam and China. So fascinatingly, many missionary uh, networks are now using the, the borderland as a place of uh, possibility for reaching out to their listener by organizing Bible training group in China so that Hmong listeners from Vietnam can cross the border and stay in house along the Sino-Vietnamese border to study the Bible and meet up with their missionary. And therefore, the relations become much closer and that helped to improve the program. The Hmong program today are very different from the Hmong program produced by Zon Li back in late 1970s and the 1980s. In comparison with their colonial counterpart, Hmong missionary belong to a group which I borrow the term of missiology as indigenous preacher because that is what they are and that is where their advantage over their colonial officer are. As being monks, as being the, the same culturally and linguistically with the people they preach, they can skip a lot of time in getting in and establish a relation with their future Christian fellow. They could also uh, secretly stay in Hmong areas in Vietnam without being detected and so many other advantages that they have. So indeed, uh, these days, the connection between the broadcaster, the Hmong missionary from the US, Thailand and Laos, and the Hmong Christian in Vietnam are much closer and much better than uh, it was 20 years ago. Although they, on the one hand, as you say, share a great deal with the people whom they're hoping to convert, it seemed to me the story you're telling in the book, especially with regards to the Hmong missionaries coming from the US, is that they themselves are very conflicted about their own identities and their place on the one hand as modern Americans, but on the other hand as people who have a certain vision of and vision for their homeland. That's right. Yeah, that is another side of the coin about this missionary relationship with the Hmong in Vietnam. So I call in the book what they do, an act of remittance. They see that they are sending back something. Instead of money, they send back fate. But by the very act of sending that fate, basically that would change their society. But the fact that many missionaries want to go to Asia, to China, to Vietnam, to Laos, 
to Thailand is to reconnect with their own cultural and ethnic roots. And as immigrant Hmong, their view about the homeland is quite classic in the sense that there is this homeland that stay there and never change. And they would not want to change that because they go back to look for that authenticity. But the fact that they go back to bring Christianity is in itself an act of making change, enormous change to that society. So that constantly play out as a conflicting interest among themselves. There are different uh, group of missionaries who come to Vietnam. For example, around the year 2011, there was this big event of millenarian uprising in northwest Vietnam. And through that event, I learned more about how different uh, Christian Hmong groups from the U.S. view their Hmong fellow in Asia and what direction they should take. So this millenarian movement was created because some group of Christian Hmong missionary in the U.S. got into the movement of Harold Camping, who predicts the, the doom days, and therefore they push for an agenda of really millenaria Christian way of doing things. They go to different areas in Vietnam preaching the end time, whereas other group who is more associated with the FABC and the Christian Missionary Alliance They would like to, even in theology, promote the idea of millennia in the long run, but from day-to-day basis that for focus on the here and now and improve a Christian faith among the believers by way of teaching them and helping them to improve the economic and other social conditions. So they are against that trend. And the document that I collected in the argument back and forth between this missionary group are fascinating. It really reveals how they are dividing among themselves. What do you think an ethnographic mode of inquiry brings to a study of this sort? What do you get out of ethnography that you might not get out of another kind of social scientific inquiry? I think we would not be able to understand Hmong Christianity or this movement of Hmong conversion without ethnography. It helped me to grasp the full extent of the implication of when once or a group choose certain direction of faith. So ethnography highlights the details of cases which sometimes, you know, that is also the weak point of anthropologists nowadays. We are not able to make argument that would be quoted by media or by policymaker because we are always coming with the but, but this. and But, you know, in fact, life is, especially in this kind of very complicated relations and development and in political context, it is, it is in communist country of Vietnam, it's very hard to impose a model. So ethnography tell us the detail and I just try to be the best that I can. I know there's a lot of shortcoming in my field work and if I would do it again, I would do it differently and so on. But I did try my best in that period and I'm happy that I chose ethnography. It's really enriched my own understanding and I hope through the book enriched reader understanding about ethnic relations, about Christianity, about a post-socialist or post-communist society and the question of religion and secularism. As we are nearly out of time, at time now, I'd like to ask you, what have you been working on since you finished writing the book? One of the projects which I'm doing now has its seat in my ethnography on the moon. When I did field work in the border areas, I was told a story about the 1979 border war by Hmong uh, informants. And at that time, I was focusing on Christianity, so I brushed it aside. 
But when I came back, this story really haunted me. The level of violence, the kind of view about war from another perspective, from ethnic minority perspective. You heard of the 1979 border war, right? But there's up till now no analysis from ethnographic inquiries about them. So I set out to study the social memory of this war, and the Hmong memory of it was one chapter, but I also have been looking at uh, Sino-Vietnamese relation and also a mode of reconciliation that is now becoming uh, dominant in Vietnam, which is through the use of spirituality uh, to close the wound of war. So we have spirit possession and what they call now telepathy as a way of contacting the dead to locating the whereabouts of the physical remain of a war fallen soldier and the act of bringing the soldier home as a way of closing that past. So that is a various aspect that I'm writing on this uh, on the social memory of the 1979 war. I also look at the refugee crisis in the late 1970 as a consequence of the end of Vietnam War and the preparation of the 1979 war in which hundreds of thousands of ethnic Chinese from Vietnam was forced either to go back to China or cross the sea to uh, seek refugee in other countries. So a second project that I have been doing is uh, ethnography on refugee and war memory. There is an institution in many provinces in China called the Overseas Chinese Farm. I do ethnography among them to collect stories about the life of Vietnamese Hua Chiao, the Vietnamese uh, ethnic Chinese who are now in China and becoming Chinese Vietnamese. And the last project that I have been busy with is the rise of Ho Chi Minh cult. Ho Chi Minh died uh, in 1969. But there are spirit medium who claim to be possessed by him secretly uh, throughout the 1970. But after the year 2000, there is a very exuberant movement of women, especially, who uh, claim to be devotee to Uncle Ho religion. So I look at several big movements in uh, Red River Delta, in which temple for Ho Chi Minh are built, uh, very, very large grassroots popular deification of Ho Chi Minh. So I look at it in parallel to the state cult built around Ho Chi Minh in a similar manner to the communist personality cult of Stalin or Lenin or Mao Zedong. Great projects and projects that I'm sure will attract a lot of attention <laughs> and interest and no doubt lead to other great books as well. Damo, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about the new way of Protestantism and the Bong in Vietnam. Thank you, Nick. It is a pleasure to talk to you. And a pleasure to talk to you likewise. And it's also a pleasure to have everyone listen. And if you haven't yet responded to the new book, Network's annual appeal drive with a small donation. Please do consider clicking on the appeal pop-up or the button on the website and making one. And if you've already done so, on behalf of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, thank you very much. Hey, like I see, get the tin the boat. Monkey! Hey, like I see, get the tin the boat. Monkey!